Welcome to Modern Ancestral Mamas, a podcast for mamas created by mamas. We discuss ancestral food, cooking, feeding our families, and holistic living with the everyday modern mom. We are Corey and Christine, two mamas on a mission to nourish our families holistically while keeping it real in today's crazy world. Follow us on this adventure and enjoy the stories and information we share. Hello, hello, and welcome back to Modern Ancestral Mamas. I am Christine from Nourish the Littles, and I have Corey, my co-host, from For Nutrients' Sake. And today, we have Sloan from Simon Says Real Food joining us, and we're going to be talking all about beginning homesteading. And Sloan is actually, she's... Um, a co-worker of mine, we created the Real Food, Real Families course together, and she's a mom of three boys. She's also an FNTP, the founder of Simon Says Real Food, and she is a homesteading and homeschooling mom. Um, she started homesteading about two years ago, and she's learned a lot, and she wants to share with us her adventure. So let's get started. Thanks for being here, Sloan. I'm really excited. Yes, I am so excited to be here. Thanks for having me on. Can we really quickly um, define what FNTP stands for? Because I think we've used that term a bunch, and I'm not sure we've ever defined it. Sloan, what's FNTP stand for? It is a functional nutritional therapy practitioner. It is a mouthful. Yeah. So back when Sloan and I first got our certifications, it used to be just nutritional therapy practitioner, so an NTP. And then maybe a year or two afterwards, they changed it to functional nutritional therapy practitioner, FNTP. And that just basically means that we have or we learned the skills to be able to functionally evaluate nutritional deficiencies in the body via palpations. That was so well said. (laughs) Yes, it was. Thanks. It's called the functional assessment or functional evaluation. Yeah. It's really cool. Okay. Well, then I think we're going to have to do another episode on that or more (laughs) in that. Yeah. Yeah. We can talk about that at another time. But for now, um, (laughs) all right. So before we get started, we like to – to um, give some little tidbit about something related to the episode. And today we were going to do something a little off what we usually do, but we're going to, everybody's going to say their favorite um, Instagram account on homesteading. So let's see, Sloan, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, there are so many to choose from. So this was kind of tough for me to pick. And also homesteading accounts are like 95% of the people that I follow on Instagram. So, um, but I went with venison for dinner because, um, I think she does a really good job of mixing homesteading in the kitchen and homesteading with animals 
and land. So um, I think she's my pick and she's a great follow. I really like her account too. She's also funny, which yeah. is fun. Yeah. I actually just started following her after you mentioned her. So I'm still new. I don't know much about her account. But um, so we kind of laughed about this because I think we all knew that I was going to say this. But <laughs> my pick is still Tara from Slow Down Farmstead. Um, I, I love her account. I think that I, it's just raw and authentic and honest. And she's a fabulous writer. And I love how she shares about all of the details of living on the farm, the, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, so that's definitely my pick. And I got to meet her and her husband in person at the 2019 conference. It was like, they're like my celebrities. (laughs) You know, she, um, I love her too. And she actually, so a couple years ago I was doing regular, um, Christine, you might remember this ingredient, um, focuses on products. Oh yeah. And I got attacked, um, like swarmed by uh trolls <laughs> for oh, like twenty twenty four hours of just being slammed from all angles and like looking back now it, it it's like funny um and if it happened to me again I don't think I would react the way I did then but when it first happened I was like really taken aback and was upset because people are you know people are mean um. But anyway, she found out about it and completely stood up for me and like shared the post on her account and talked about it. And, um, it, you know, it was, that was so nice of her. Anyway, I loved, I loved her before then, but then to do that for me was, she's, she's awesome. Yeah. I've totally forgot about that. That was actually back in 2020. No, it wasn't. It had to be like. No, I was in Switzerland when it happened. Really? Yeah. Huh. You're in Switzerland oh, in you're, right. you're right. It was right before all of that happened. Yeah. I, I was on the last flight out of the U.S. before Trump closed the border. Oh, my gosh. Before the pandemic started. That's stressful. That's a whole nother story. And Juan, I'll never forget this. You can decide whether you include this or not. But we were sitting at a cafe in Switzerland and he said to me, this is going to be a really big deal. And I got really triggered by that. And I said, no, it's not. And we got in an argument about it. And I said, this is not going to be that big of a deal. It's not. Oh, and I had the a world blew up. Yeah. I had a conversation like that with a friend like two weeks before our school shut down. I, me- I remember her being like, my husband like is glued to the computer tracking all of the data. And I was like, really? Seriously? I'm not worried about it at all. And then... Two weeks later, our schools were like, yeah, you're not coming back. <laughs> Maybe we were all just in denial that the world was about to blow up. Anyway. On that note, Corey, what is your homesteading <laughs> IG account? Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> so I had a feeling that um, Christine was going to say slow down Thumbstead. Um, so I wanted to pick one that was not 
a big account because I think there's a lot to be gained from the smaller accounts, especially the uh, ones that are sort of local to where you are or sort of in the same, you know, kind of zone, if you will. Um, And I like that a lot of the smaller ones have just, they're not curated, you know, they're not like trying to make it pretty. They're not the ones who are saying like, oh, look at my beautiful cow with the flowers draped over her neck while I'm out here in my prairie dress milking and the children are frolicking. And <laughs> I know so many accounts like that. Right? So many. <laughs> and they're beautiful and I follow those too, but they're not actually very helpful. Um, so the one that I was going to sh- throw out is um, the real Teal's. And Sarah Teal is the um, the mom behind the account. And she's actually um, a Weston A. Price chapter leader in Alabama. And she's super sweet. And she has almost five kids. And she homeschools. And she has a milk cow and all the other animals. But she's not trying to put a flowery picture on. <laughs> There's no flowers draped over her cow. <laughs> All right, so she, she's really great. Anyway, I guess we can take our little COVID rant and transition because if we hadn't had COVID, would you be where you're at now, Sloan? Probably not. All right, so tell us, how did you get um, to the point of having a homestead? Um, okay, so... The backstory is my um, half-sister, who is 25 years older than me. She's from my dad's first marriage. Um, She got married and bought a farm in rural Iowa. And I grew up visiting her. um, I don't know what time of year, but I remember it not being cold. So it must have been in the summers. just experiencing farm life. And it was to me, I think she has 15 acres, but, um, it seemed like hundreds of acres to a kid that grew up in a neighborhood, you know? Um, and we were like jumping hay bales and climbing up into the barn loft and playing with barn kitties and chasing sheep. Like it was so idyllic. And so I kind of like, it was, I think, um, Yeah, it was so idyllic. So anyway, I grew up with that in the back of my mind, just how neat and awesome that was. Um, And she also homeschooled her kids. Um, And so, you know, fast forward, I moved to Dallas because I went to school at SMU. I graduated, got married, you know, um, had my first child, James. And then um, we did decide to randomly look at some property after James was born because we were ready to move out of our first house into a larger place. Um, But we looked around and it just seemed too scary. I don't know. And I don't know. It's kind of crazy that Mark and I also aligned on the idea that owning land was something we might want to do together. I have no idea where he got that idea. I'll have to ask him like where that originated from because he grew up in the city. We both grew up in huge cities. So um, we were two chicken to do it then. 
Um, and so then we bought a house in a neighborhood in North Dallas and were there for seven years. And then COVID happened. And I think, you know, there's a whole group of people in COVID that just kind of reevaluated what they were doing. I think there were, you know, there were people that were starting to work from home during this that were like, hey, I could work from home. I don't have to go into the office every day and I can spend more time with my family or, you know, there, you know, every, I feel like everybody was like figuring out different paths if the one that they had wasn't working for them. And so we also reevaluated and realized that we did want to bite the bullet and take a risk and move out of the city um, and find land. And we started looking in March uh, of 2020 and went under contract in August and then uh, moved in in November, which is a that's a different story because we had some issues with the title. But um, so, yeah, it felt like a really long time searching for one, but um, it, it actually wasn't. It was less than a year. So, yeah, that's how I, that's how we got here. So what did you guys do before you had property? Um, well, we lived in a normal neighborhood in North Dallas um, with one third of an acre as our, you know, entire house plot. Um, (laughs) Our kids went to normal preschools and public school. James was in first grade when we pulled him out. And then um, I was doing um, full-time FNTP business stuff. Christine, I think you and I were writing our course or had just launched it uh, back when all that happened. And then um, Mark is in real estate. He works for himself. He's a real estate developer with apartments. And so um, he still does that now. Um, But yeah, we were living very normal suburbia type lives. Did you have any animals when you were? Yeah, um, we had uh, dogs. And then right, um, I think in April of 2020, we got uh, baby chicks. Okay, so you had chickens in your backyard in your suburb. Yes, because we were kind of thinking, okay, if we don't find land that we like or if we don't have – if we just don't come across anything that's going to work out and we stay here, we still wanted to try to become a little bit more self-sustainable. And so we started with chicks. And we were also going to do a garden. We're going to transform part of our backyard into a big garden. So that was next on the list if we were going to stay there. Okay. Yeah. So when you guys started looking for properties, what were you looking for in a property? Like, did you, yeah, what were you searching for? I love this question because it's funny to think of how we started out. Like the very first property we looked at, um, it had no fencing. It was it like nothing was cleared. Um, the house was super wonky. I didn't, I didn't even like, I had no idea what I was supposed to be looking for. And I'm glad that the house, the first several ones that we looked at had really like wonky houses that weren't going to work because had the houses been beautiful, we probably would have put an offer and then been stuck high and dry. So, um, I would definitely, so what we were looking for is an infrastructure in place. So I really wanted 
a house that we could, that even didn't have to be amazing, but something that had good bones that we could work with. Um, I wanted some type of barn or stables or pens, like working pens or something like that so that we weren't starting from scratch um, when getting animals. And then um, fencing is probably the biggest one because if you're buying a large piece of property, putting fencing around the whole thing is insanely expensive. So um, especially now. Um, so that was really important. And then a bonus would be the um, cross fencing, like within the uh, the fence around the perimeter, then having additional fencing inside, which is called cross fencing. Um I was looking for a water source. I wanted like some type of creek or pond um, running through there. Um, topography was important to me because I think, you know, when we were purchasing this, we were kind of looking for our forever piece of property. So um, I wanted something that wasn't just a big flat square of land. Like I wanted a little bit of hills as much as you can get and flat Texas or in this region, at least, um, some trees, a little bit of woods, you know, that type of stuff. And, oh, another big one, um, was trying to find a, a piece of property that wasn't close to any huge farming practices, Mm -hmm. uh, so that we wouldn't get any type of overspray of pesticides or all of that junk. Yeah. Real quick, how did you know that, like, when you're looking for property, how do you know if you are close to a large conventional farm? I guess you could just, like, look it up, or would you, like, would you go in and drive around to see what was nearby, or how did yeah, that work? We, anytime we looked at a piece of property that we liked, we would drive quite a ways around it just to see what was around it, not even necessarily for big farming practices but it's funny in the country it's like you have no idea what could be around the corner it could be like a broken down shack and a trailer or it could be a mansion like you just have no idea um and those are kind of your neighbor your neighbors I'm putting that in air quotes because neighbors are like half a mile away but um you know you never know when you're gonna need a neighbor's help so we would do a big drive around and just kind of see what was around the area and then also do um, an aerial view on Google and like zoom way out and you can like, you can pinpoint certain things around there. That's a really good idea. And so what is the topography of your property right now? We did pretty good. We, um, there is a creek running through it um, in the middle. There's lots of trees there's open pastures. Um, there's some woods behind our house. There's a little bit of a ridge or a hill. Um, and there's a bit of rolling hills in the back. And then we also have a pond in the back too. Yeah, it's, it's great. <laughs> I mean, I've been before. It's beautiful. I really like it. <laughs> I know you're at, like, what's your place like? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I should have asked that one. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I did reach out to you when we were looking for our place 
and was trying to get some information about what I should be looking for because I tried to watch some YouTube videos on it and there was not really very helpful. They, they were not very helpful. So I asked you and I asked another homesteading friend. I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. What should I be looking for? Yeah. Um, And that was actually really helpful. So thanks. I actually did the same thing. Um, Once we kind of got into the process of looking, I reached out to a couple of friends who I knew lived on land and um, could give me some pointers. So I had a little bit. And I also was asking them, like, what do I need to, like, expect once we buy the property? Like, what all does this entail, you know, buying this big of a piece of land? So how much land do you have? Um, now we have 50 acres. We bought, um, 33 at the time and then expanded, uh, with some, uh, land behind that backs up to our house once we bought. And 50 acres is a, is a good, you know, amount of land, but, um, not too much though. When you start really getting into the homesteading community, the people have, you know, several hundred and there's places around our house that have, um, shoot, I'm going to forget his name. Like they've been there for 160 years because they got land grants from General Sam Houston. Right. That's his name, right? Yeah. Yeah. That could be it. Yeah. Um, you know, they've been there forever, you know, on hundreds of acres. So that's cool. 50 feels like a lot to me to manage, but we would even love to expand that amount eventually. Okay, so when you guys first moved out there, you already had chickens. What did you start with aside from the chickens? I think our – okay, so when we bought the property from the original owners, they had donkeys. Um, So we inherited those donkeys with the farm because they were downsizing and were ready to hang up their hat with – um, any type of large animal ownership. So we took on five donkeys immediately, um, along with the chickens. And then after the donkeys, we purchased our first beef cows. I think we got three to start with and then, um, added two more because three beef cows just looked so sad walking around on that much property alone. Like you're used to seeing cows and herds cause they're herd animals. And to see the three of them just like shuffling around together, we were like, we got to get a few more. <laughs> and then they had, um, a couple of them had calves. So, but yeah. What is the purpose of a donkey on a property? They are really good protectors of any type of animal around them. Um, They keep away coyotes. They keep away snakes. Um, They keep away hawks, things like that, that will take out any type of animal on the farm. Um, But they're great for our beef cows because they're kind of in the back part of our property and that's where the donkeys are. What would be really great is if I was able to move one of the donkeys to just like walk the perimeter of our house Um, (laughs) because that's where our chickens are when they free range. They go all around our house and there's no donkeys up there. 
Um, so. Oh, so you need some, you need to protect her for the chickens. Yeah. When I went to the farm tour at this most recent conference, the 2021 conference, um, the, the farmer there said that the geese were the protectors for the chickens and he really recommended geese. Yeah, I'd love to get geese because I think they're they're funny and they have such great personalities. Um, scary. scary. (laughs) I was bitten by a goose one time when I was a kid. I believe it. Oh yeah, I was stupid though. I was like, I'm gonna feed this goose with my fingers. (laughs) (laughs) I think my kids would probably hate it. Um, But I have questions about that. Because I don't know much about geese yet. So like I want like where do they go to sleep? How do they protect themselves? Like, do they go in the chicken coop? From what I understand, you get one goose um that lives with the chickens, and you only get one because if you get more than one, then they recognize that they're geese and um don't protect the chickens as much. So you get one goose that lives with the chickens. Okay. I could be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure like, that's... Like, they get up there and roost? I mean, they have different... They have webbed feet, but they, like, get in the chicken coop? I think so. I think they just live with the chickens. Okay. I'm going to have to look into this because... I know Justin not... Rhodes has information about it. That's where okay. Ryan learned about it. We've had a few chicken, you know, taken out by some hawks, so... I, and, you know, it happens. And we turn on music. We actually always have music going when the um, chickens This is out. hilarious. Yes. What kind of music do your chickens listen to? Country. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Not true. Not true. One time I came over and James said, they're listening to Mexican music. And I was cracking up. <laughs> You're right. That was probably when we were using, like, the old CD player. Oh, it was, it was on, so like, funny. It was, like, the... Mariachi. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but yeah, so it supposedly deters hawks or other pre- any predator really because they think it's people. Yeah. Um, and then I've also heard of hanging CDs in trees because of like the reflection. I've heard of that for orchards. Oh. Yeah, yeah, that would work too. It's like oh. any type of bird that would come down like it would get freaked out from the reflections but I don't know if I want to hang I mean got a lot of trees around it I'm not quite sure where we would hang CDs and I don't know if I want to do that so I need to look yeah. in peace yeah. it's so interesting uh okay so do you um have any tips for people who are beginning homesteading I know you're only in it two years you're on your year two okay yes so you've learned two years in what do you have for those of us who haven't started yet um so the way I mean I think it depends on how you learn best I am a doer when it comes to learning like I have to do it myself in order to figure something out Um, I can read about it as much as I want, but it's not going to like be solid in my brain until I figure it out with my own hands. Um, so for me, it was important to connect with anybody local 
that was able to help us with various things. And I think the first person that really uh, I connected with was our a neighbor down the street. Um, and then my beef farmer, we found a beef farmer out here because our, we do have beef cattle, but, um, we won't, uh, dive into that for a couple of years, uh, because they need to have calves and mature. And then those calves need to mature. And anyway, so we did have to find a farmer out here and she was able, she's actually, um, the one we bought our milk cow from because she used to be a dairy and then switched to beef. Anyway, um, and she put me in touch with a bunch of people. So it's like, you know, you know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody. Um, so whatever questions I had, I would ask her, and she would kind of put me in touch with the right person for that specific task. But so I think connecting locally is is the first thing. Um, and it's awkward and it's hard. It's, I'm not shy, but for shy people, that can be especially daunting um, just to – like put yourself out there and and then also put yourself out there and then ask questions of how to do things and have somebody come show you. But um, it was the easiest way for me to learn. And then I did, I read a couple books and I followed a couple, I mean, at the time I followed a couple of homesteading accounts that quickly grew into hundreds of homesteading accounts. But <laughs> what were some of the books that you read? I read Keeping a Family Cow. Uh, gosh, I forget her name. It's like Joanna something. Um, and honestly, that was helpful, but it was so much information. Um, before we bought a milk cow, it seemed incredibly overwhelming and daunting. Because, um, I, I mean, I remember there were so many details. I remember there was a detail in the book that was like, don't let your cow out too early from the barn because if there's dew on the grass, they can eat too much of it and then get bloat. Um, and I was like, so when we first got our cow, I remember being panicked because there's like dew on the ground every morning. <laughs> and I would watch her from the window eating it, just chomping down and just, and then I'd go out there and like feel her body. And then I was like looking up bloat, you know, YouTube videos of how to cure it. And anyway, um, yeah. So any, there were so many details like that in the book that I, I, there was no book that I read that was like very basic how to type of information. And actually I feel like there is such a lack of this that you're going to write a book. Well, not, I don't know what to call it. It's my friend, um, Liz, she's an urban farm wife. She actually purchased our first calf that my milk cow had. Um, and she is also a homesteader and we are figuring out some way to create that type of content for people like you, Corey, who are just starting out. Yeah. That'd be awesome. Like just very functional, basic, you know, if you want to start gardening or chickens or have a milk cow what to look for in land, basically what this whole podcast is about. <laughs> um, yes, please. <laughs> yeah. So it's that anyway. So I wasn't able to find something like that. So we're going to create it. But um, so I don't have a ton of tips. I just kind of did it. I don't know. I don't remember being like, I'm going to do this and this and this. I just kind of like went with the flow. 
So your tip is dive in and figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm not very helpful on that. <laughs> no, I think that is helpful. I actually think that's how that's how we get a lot of places, you know. You just have to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So if we okay, going back to your milk cow. Um this was your first time having the milk cow and you were basically just like learning through experience. What do you feed the milk cow out of curiosity? I so she does grass almost, you know, 99.9% of the time she's on grass. Um and she has many acres. And then in the winter, we also supplement with hay since the grass goes dormant. So then she's on hay. Um, and then we do a combination of grains and beet pulp and molasses. And she has a salt lick for minerals. And I also put an additional um, powdered minerals on her feed. And forgetting something else, but that's the gist. Okay. Let's circle back to the grain thing. Okay. Because there is a lot of talk in our communities about how cows should not have grain at all. Yes. There is a lot of talk about that. (laughs) So enlighten us. Okay. Um, so It's a complicated question, but to put it in short form, um, most milk cows have been bred for generations for milk production, for the most milk production, um, to yield as much as possible in dairy-type settings. And so to take a cow that has been bred for production and then put her on grass would be detrimental to her health. And what's interesting about it is that her milk production wouldn't change. She would most likely produce the same amount of milk, but she would be taking it from her own reserves, like her own body versus the help of grain in her feed. So that's why uh, cows can get so skinny so quickly when they're only on grass and they were on a grain type mixture. And I think there's some misinformation out there too, because I think when people picture milk cows on grain, they're thinking only grain, but it can be a large mixture of feed and there's only, you know, two pounds of grain in there versus, you know, an entire nine pounds of grain. So it's a mixture. And then you can also um, help with the digestibility of it by fermenting it overnight in some vinegar water or apple cider vinegar, things like that to help um, for her. But I, and I've read that it takes about three generations of cows um, to even make the smallest improvement of taking them off of grain and adjusting them onto grass. And so if you, if somebody wanted to do that, I would urge them maybe not to start, like for me, my milk cow's name is Gertie. I don't think I would start with Gertie, but I could maybe start with one of her calves or maybe one of her calves' calves. Um, so it's it's not a quick change process. It has to be 
really intentional and gradual and you have to keep track of how she's doing with it. And cows, you know, can get emaciated so quickly. And so me being a beginner homesteader, it wasn't something that I wanted to even try um, at this point. But maybe with one of her calves down the line, I might try. But um, I would definitely urge anybody who is looking into feeding their milk cow only grass to do a lot of research on it and just feel really good about um, the process before diving into it. And then the other thing is is that um, depending on where you live, like I know Tara um, at Slowdown Farmstead, she does not milk her cows all year because it gets so cold where she is that she can't give them enough grass and hay to make up um, for what the cow needs. And so they wean them for a certain amount of time um, and then start them back up when it's warm. So you just have to be well-versed in the subject. That's so interesting. And I've also heard that it even varies from cow to cow. So yeah. um, let's say, I think you have two milk cows. So like Gertie might need the grains, but Trudy might do okay on just grass. Um, yeah. And it's, that is interesting. And it's, it's like, um, you know, it's like bio-individuality of humans. You know, animals are bio-individual as well. They have the same basic needs, but you're right. The amount could change. And even just in body structure, like Trudy, our other cow seems a lot more robust. Um, Gertie seems more, um, bony. So who knows? Yeah. If Trudy, is pregnant, which fingers crossed, I hope she is. Um, we'll see what she's like when she has a calf. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that, Sloan, because I know that that is such a touchy subject. Um, uh, now, our beef cows are on grass only. so Yeah, so do beef cows can be solely yes. on grass. It's just the dairy cows that need some yeah. dairy cows, uh, depending on their genetics, need the grain. Yes. Okay. I mean, that makes sense, right? Like a nursing mother needs more calories mm -hmm. to be able to produce milk. Yeah. 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 Wait, are your, you have Jersey milk cow. What are your beef cows? Are they Angus or something? They're Brangus. So they are a mix of Brahmin and Angus. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then we have um, one that is a mix of Longhorn. Okay. Yeah. And then have you, out of curiosity, have you had your, your dairy cows tested for their milk proteins? Do you know what they are? I do. Um, well, I, Trudy, we're not sure, but, um, the likelihood is A2A2. Um, oh, wow. but Gertie is 100% for sure. A2A2. Wow. And yeah, is that a difficult test to do? No. Um, you, take tail hairs and send them off to, um, we had the, we had our farmer do it, um, because she, you know, had the routine down, but it's, I think it's USC, um, oh. that tests them. And so, yeah, it's from their, the hairs in their tail. Oh, wow. That's fascinating. I know. Yeah. Um, can you touch really quick on 
why A2A2 is superior or wanted or whatever? I <laughs> probably, probably not. Um, because I have read so much about this, but like my brain can't wrap around like exactly what it is. It's something in the protein makeup that makes it more digestible. Christine, do you have a better explanation? Yeah. So the A2 milk, um, so it's a variety of cow's milk that lacks a form of like the B casein proteins called A1. And so basically it's easier for the body to digest the A2 milk proteins than the A1 milk proteins. I kind of had it. So I know that it's like double the price for a meat to get A2A2 raw milk from the farm that we get raw milk from. Because, oh, the A2 is more expensive? Yeah. Yeah, It's like double. It's way more expensive. I know. But if anybody has any type of dairy sensitivities, like this, obviously, if you have a large dairy sensitivity, um, actually, most of that can be eliminated when you switch to raw milk. But then there are people who actually do have legitimate dairy sensitivities and sometimes switching even from A1 to A2 um, can help, but not always. But it does make a difference in, in how your body feels if you do have that sensitivity. So here's the the scientific explanation is that the only difference between the A1 and A2 milk protein is the 67th amino acid chain is different. And your body digests casein and all proteins by snipping these long strings of amino acids into shorter segments called peptides. And so I guess with the A2 um, that it's easier for the body to like break down the amino acid chain. See, I just need to memorize that little sound bite because I get that question a lot and I'm always like, it's a lot of scientific jargon. Um, just trust me, it's better for you. <laughs> um, okay, so yeah. Oh, okay. I'll go ahead and ask this since I started. Sorry, Corey. Okay. But I was taking over your question. But what are some daily chores that you have to do on your land? Definitely milking the cow. And- How many times a day? twice. Okay. And I try to say, sorry, go ahead. No, like serious question from someone who doesn't know anything about this. Why do you have to milk a cow twice a day? I do it because don't. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No. And I, you know, I've, sometimes it can be a beating doing it twice a day. So part of me is like, maybe I should try to go back to once. Um, I know Sally Fallon um, nurses, goodness, milks only <laughs> once a day. <laughs> oh, oh <man>. guys. <laughs> okay, um, so Sally, ner- uh, good. <laughs> she milks it only oh, once a day. Yeah, she milks once a day, and her and she says it's because um, it gives the milk more fat. Really? That, oh, I like mean, more that's cream? what she says. More cream, you mean? Yeah. Interesting. 
Yeah. Um, okay. So I do it um, twice a day because I just want to be on the lookout for any type of mastitis issues. And this is her first calf. So she's a first time mom. Um, and I just want to be careful with it. So I do it twice a day. Um, I probably at, at some point will switch to one time a day, but it's not going to be with this first round. It would probably be with the next calf. Um, so yeah, we actually, so we, we get cream obviously, but we don't get a ton of cream. And so that's why I was intrigued by your comment that maybe switching to once a day would help that. What's funny, actually, some days we get tons of cream and then other days we don't, but it's not reliable cream, Mm. but you know, it's like this much cream, but a lot of people, you know, have like this much cream. Yeah. So, okay, so I milk the cows twice a day. Um, We have to take care of the chickens daily, um, check their water, uh, feed them, let them out to roam after lunch. Um, Right now we have chicks again, so those are a little bit high maintenance. Um, And then watering gardens and tower gardens and things like that. And then every other day during the warm months, we are checking on the beef cows and the donkeys and everything. And then during cold days, we are checking on them and feeding them daily. Yeah. And they just get water from your creek or your lake? They do, but we also have automatic water troughs that so they can drink out of those and then when um and then it automatically fills back up which is that was from our previous the previous owners and that those are amazing to have that sounds awesome yeah. highly recommend yeah when i was a kid and we had um we boarded my cousin's horses for a while and i don't know what happened but like oh no i do know what happened my dad ran over the hose with the lawnmower And I had to carry jugs of water down to the horse trough for, I don't know, it was probably like just a day or two of doing that. It was terrible. That's a lot. (laughs) That's a lot. (laughs) Yeah, and they have heaters. So like if we know that we're going to get below freezing, like do a hard freeze, we'll go switch the heaters on so that they don't freeze. I'm adding that to my- Whoa, these are fancy water troughs. Yeah. They're really great. My goodness. Okay. So I know you guys went on vacation not too long ago. How'd you yeah. pull that off? Um, with a lot of logistics. That is um, – it can be done, but it's just um, – I feel like everybody probably gets stressed before they go on vacation. Um, this was like a new level for me in figuring this out. Um So we had one family that was taking care of all of our indoor animals, like cats and dogs. And then we had to board one of our dogs because he needs, you know, too much. He can't be cooped up in the house all day. So we boarded him. We had a family, you know, doing the mail and the indoor animals. And then we had a different family that was managing all of the livestock um, and chickens. So luckily he – the husband that was in charge of the milking has been working for a dairy for like 25 years. So I felt really good, obviously, about leaving because he was 
very well versed in milking and knew about, you know, the ins and outs of that. So had I had to teach somebody how to milk, um, that would have been scary for me to leave them on their own. Yeah, I feel like that's, I'm not looking forward to that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, I think you told me one time, one way is to, um, like before you ever need to go on vacation, like just train somebody on how to do things so that when you're ready to go on vacation, there's somebody that already knows how to do everything. Yeah. So I have a friend um, who's a Wesleyan Price chapter leader in Canada. And I know she has somebody come once a week to milk her cow and that person gets to take home the milk. So they get free milk and she has somebody that kind of gives her a break once a week. And then she's also trained um, so that if, you know, she's, the farmer gets sick or has to go somewhere or something, she has somebody that can take over. I think that's important because um, when Gertie, even when we were just feeding them, like we went to the lake a couple times um, last summer and I would drive back twice a day because it's 25 minutes from our house um, to milk Gertie. And it was so terrible. <laughs> like I was like, I'm not just, I'm just not going to go next time. I'll just have like a weekend by myself at my house and it'll be great. Um, but now that we have somebody that knows how to do all of it, I think it is, I think that is something that's a tip for any new homesteader is to do that is to find somebody who you can either pay once a day, I mean, once a week to come and, you know, learn what you're learning or they can, you know, be paid in trade, you know, whether it's eggs or milk or whatever. So that, um, I don't know, like even if you're pregnant and you have a baby and you need somebody to do it for a month, you know, while you're in postpartum or if you want to go on vacation or if you're sick or something, I think it's important to have that backup. So what suggestions do you have for someone who does not have land like myself? Um, well, I mean, I think it depends on if people want to homestead or not, like if they are looking to increase their self-sustainability, if they are, then there's a lot of things you can do, um, on a small piece of land, you can start a garden and there are so many options now that, you know, from raised beds to tower gardens, um, to indoor gardening with grow lights, like there's so many options out there now. Um, I personally, even though we have 50 acres, I started my garden experience with garden towers because, um, they were just, they seemed easy to me and kind of like foolproof and they are, they are super easy to grow things in. And I still grow, um, lettuce varieties in them and herbs because they're foolproof. Um, so you can, that can fit on a balcony at an apartment. And you can even um, bring it inside if you have really good lighting. So um, I would, you know, gardening for sure. Composting. could definitely do composting. Um, And chickens. Chickens are like the gateway animal to homesteading. Um, They're they're not hard animals to take care of. In fact, they're easier to take care of in a backyard than they are on land, in my experience. 
So I would definitely recommend chickens. Do they fly away? They can fly. um, No, they don't fly away, but they could fly like, you know, up to a fence and then hop into your neighbor's yard if they wanted to. Okay. Or like to the top of their coop or something. But they they actually, um, they come back themselves every night. People who know have chickens know this, but for those who don't, um, chickens put themselves to bed. They will like go home right before it starts getting dark and like go and not just in their chicken run, but like in their coop, in their nesting boxes and like go to bed. Um, yeah. Wow. Can they teach our kids how to do this? <laughs> I know. Right at, right at sundown. That would be great. Yeah. They're funny animals. My neighbors have chickens here and they will come up to my back door and like peck at the back door <laughs> and like play with my kids through the back door. It's very funny. We, so our neighbors at our, in our old house got guinea fowl. Those are loud. Which um, was funny in a, in a neighborhood type setting, but they really wanted help with like mosquito control um, which they do. They're great at um, tick control and mosquitoes and all types of, you know, bugs. Um, but uh, they're super loud and they uh, did not stick to their backyard. And the, and the only reason I'm talking about this is because they would come to our front window on our house, which was like a really large window, and roost on the um, windowsill. All day, like all day, <laughs> and they would like it was there was like poop all over it, and they were squawking and loud. Um, and it, I had to have one of those like awkward neighbor conversations where I was like, "Can you somehow control your?" <laughs> oh, <laughs> I got I'm, excited I'm, for it. Like I, we actually do. Um, one of the questions that I get asked the most. Uh, when it comes to living on land is how do you, how, what do you do about ticks? Mm, That's, everybody yeah. wants to know about that. Um, the answer is nothing. We just comb through our children's hair um, and check over their bodies like every single day. And we do find ticks on them um, pretty often, but we, since we comb through them every single day, the ticks are never like embedded Um, and then you, we have, we have, we know what to watch for, you know, if there is an issue, but that being aside, guinea fowl are supposed to really help with ticks. And so we've thought about getting them, but I just, I keep hearing these stories about how terrible they are. So we haven't done that. Yeah. My, my pig farmer here has them because his wife really likes fowl and he has, he mentioned to me how loud and obnoxious they are and he didn't really it didn't sound like he liked them yeah (laughs) and yeah I mean I was there for one time I was there for you know like an hour or two and they did not shut up the entire time I was there do you eat them or do you do they do eggs like what what's the purpose other than bug control I think you can eat them I think they're like peasants pheasants right (laughs) peasants I don't know about the eggs. I meant I'm pheasants. 
I don't know what the purpose is besides that. Ryan has a hard and fast rule for our homestead. Absolutely no animals without a very specific purpose. Mm. Okay, they do. You can um, eat their eggs. Just looked it up. Okay. I'm going to look into it. Okay, so tell us about your kids. Are they... Well, first tell us your age, ages of your, not your age, your kids' ages. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, James is uh, nine, uh, Robert is six, and Joseph or JoJo is four. All boys. And are they required to help around the farm? They are. They each have, well, Joseph, um, not quite yet. We just kind of tell him things to do so he doesn't have tasks that he does every day. Um, he's still learning that whole process. Um, four is a hard age for Joseph. <laughs> um, there's a lot of there's a lot of pushback about everything. Um, but the older two, James manages the chickens. So he every morning he'll go out and feed and water the chickens and get their eggs and he checks on the chicks. Um, Robert, I mean, this isn't farm related, but Robert does the kitty litter boxes. Um, And he also helps James with the chickens. And then um, most of the time they'll come and, and help me out with the cow. So this seems trivial, but what would really make milking easy for me is if I could just like walk down there and everything is like all set up for me and all I had to do was sit down and start milking. But it seems like, um, and I love milking, so I'm not complaining here, but there's a lot of like, you have to get all their feed situated and then you have to make sure that you've got the clean milk bucket and the, I milk into a jar to make it cleaner, a cleaner process. And so I need to make sure I have a clean jar. And then there's a rag that you use to wipe down the teats and you have to have the iodine mixture for uh, sanitizing the, you know, it's like a bunch of stuff. And then once the cows get over there, you have to get Gertie into her milking station and, you know, get the gate put up and then the milking stool over. So sometimes <laughs> sometimes they'll come over and, like, help me do all of that, which is nice. So that was a lot of explanation about milking the cow, but it is a process. Do they like doing the chores? I think I remember a funny story about Robert. <laughs> um, yeah, he took my phone, um, and started making videos, like talking to himself. And there's, I'll have to share this if he'll let me on it on Instagram one day, but he's just like talking about how hard of a life it is, you know, living on a farm. It's it's a hard life guys (laughs) doing these. And I think what he references is, you know, doing kitty litter, taking out the chickens and like, that's it. That's all he can do. <laughs> like five minutes of his day, but. And it's a hard life. A hard life. Um, Bless his heart. Yeah. <laughs> I would say, um, no, they don't really love doing chores, but um, I think if we were to move, you know, back into like our old house or a new house and we weren't on land, there would be so much complaining 
about the lack of it. So like now that they're adjusted to this life, I think they would have a really hard time going the other direction. So like, yeah, they don't love cleaning out chicken poop and stuff like that and helping us on Saturdays when we're doing all of the major stuff, but um, they love living on the farm. And James especially is an animal lover. So like being around all these animals all the time is so awesome for him. So they're normal kids. They do complain about that stuff, but. Yeah. What would you say has been your biggest win so far and then your biggest struggle? Um, I think the biggest win is definitely mastering the milk cow. Um, and I've not even mastered it completely, but I've kept her alive and we are getting milk. <laughs> I have yet, uh, I haven't even gone down the cheese road yet. Um, I'm hoping to do that soon. I have a friend that's um, supposed to come help me uh, start with mozzarella. So uh, maybe this time next year, I'll be like fully into that. Um, but we've made, but we make butter and we use the cream and, um, haven't even made ice cream yet, but we've made, we make yogurt a lot. And then, um, obviously just have raw milk, uh, all the time in abundance. So, um, and like the chickens are great, obviously, because we get eggs regularly and we eat so many eggs anyway. Um, but like having that much of an abundance of food coming from a cow is just really neat. Like this animal can give back to the homestead so much. Um, and so I feel, yeah, I feel like that was a win, especially because the first couple of weeks when she had her calf was like high stress for me. I was, and it's because I like Mark kept telling me to calm down. Everything will work itself out. But it's like when you have your first baby and you're trying to figure out breastfeeding, and you have like no idea how much milk they're getting. Are they gaining enough weight? Um, are they latched? Like this position hurts, like all of those things. And then, but I, I couldn't like ask her any questions, obviously. <laughs> because, and there's a lot of opinions about when you're supposed to first milk out your cow after they have a calf. Some people wait months, um, for just the calf to become adjusted. Others say you need to do it within two hours of birth. So there was like a lot of different opinions on when to do it. So I was stressed about that. And then I was stressed about like, she wouldn't let me actually milk her. I had to call my farmer over to help me like get her into a certain station and area so that I could actually do it. There's, it was it was a lot of stress. Um, so looking back on that, I feel like I've come a, a long way mm. for sure. Um, and then the hardest, uh, what was the other question? The And the biggest struggle. Um, I think the biggest struggle really is just um, like everything else besides homesteading, uh, incorporating it into homesteading. So like homeschooling, um, things that you like need a routine for. If there's an issue um, you with homesteading, anything homesteading related, like you have to go fix it. And so there can be a lot of disruptions and lack of routine some days, which kind of drives me crazy. Um, 
So just, yeah, I would say just adjusting to that. And then there's always something new that you're supposed to be learning and figuring out. Because I feel like, you know, I think our next um, our next thing that we'll probably get, we, Mark kind of is set on pigs. He'd like to get pigs. Um, so figuring that out or meat birds. So, you know, then we're in a whole new learning ball game, you mm-hmm. know, so there's always something. Okay. So um, to kind of close this out here. How do you manage all of this? Because you have your FNTP business. You have this um, Real Food Real Families, Real Food Real Families course with Christine that you both run. You homeschool. um, You uh, manage your household. You do all the cooking and um, sourcing of food that you don't grow yourself. You grow all the food. Um, I mean, if we like listed it out, it'd be probably two or three full-time jobs. So how are you managing all of it? And your husband works, so he's not there all the time. Yeah. I mean, he does help, you know, however he can, but yeah, for the majority of the day, he's off doing his own business stuff. So, um, yeah, I don't really know. (laughs) I don't know. Um, I think there's always something that is probably um, untouched that, you know, is left behind, like laundry or and a, a deep clean. Um, I also think that people have kind of a false idea of how much time homeschooling takes. You know, it, it can be just a couple hours a day and then we move on to whatever, whatever else we need to do. Obviously, some days if we go down like a rabbit hole, we're doing more. But for the most part, um, homeschooling is just a few hours. And so that leaves time for all the other stuff. Um, But uh, yeah, I mean, there's no like, I can't give you a list of of like exactly how I handle it. I, I just figure it out. You just have to figure it out. And like it will happen for you in the way that it's supposed to happen, like whatever you're passionate about, which are all of the things that you listed, you know, food, cooking, homesteading, homeschooling, growing stuff or learning how to grow stuff or like all things that I'm super passionate about. So I make the time for it. Um, it just varies week to week, like what has the first focus, you know? And what happens when you come up across something that you don't know how to do? Um, just kind of figure it out. (laughs) YouTube videos. I mean, I watched lots of YouTube videos on how to pull a calf when we came across that issue a year ago or so. Um, and that was very helpful, but yeah, there's no like, um, direct directions on how to do this stuff. So, um, just talking to people, um, Homesteading accounts on Instagram have been greatly helpful to me. I con- I've conversed with several large accounts who have it all figured out or seem to have it all figured out, and they'll give me ideas on how to handle something. Um, and then since I've been in this community now for a couple of years, I've grown a great local community who I can turn to for questions and things like that. But 
Um, when I first started out, it was mostly just kind of like pulling from all different types of resources and, and just like figuring it out. And that's, that's how Mark, I mean, Mark and I kind of dove headfirst into homesteading. Um, so we really did, uh, learn by doing. Yeah. It almost sounds like there's not a specific, um, recipe that you can follow for everything like you like you said you learn as you go and your particular experience is going to be different than I don't know let's say Corey's experience um she's in a completely different state different weather different topography um so I think to give specific advice is probably not as helpful uh, for most people, just because they're going to have to figure it out on their own, depending on their own unique situation, the animals that they have, the, you know, family, the land, that kind of thing. Yeah. When I started, um, researching sourdough, I read all these different recipes from all the different, um, places. And, you know, there's people have been making sourdough in different countries for thousands of years and they've made them so differently just depending on the history of the area or the um you know what was available there or the or the climate but they're all still sourdough yeah so and that's the same thing with you know cultured vegetables or dairy like how many different kinds of cheeses are there? And this is just because it's what's developed and people have figured it out. Yeah. I also, um, I think I mentioned this, but like it really does help if you're excited and passionate about what you're doing. Like if you are excited to purchase land and start homesteading, there of course will be hiccups and difficult situations, but like, you'll also be so excited to do it and like learn about it. And I'll, and I'll also say that like, when it's like this for anything, um, if you're excited about something, you will learn it and it will become ingrained in your brain and you'll never forget it. So just, it's kind of like drinking from a fire hose. Um, you know, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, that's great. I mean, well, thank you so much for sharing this experience with us. This and was so fun. Thanks for having me. Everything that you've learned, yeah. Uh, is there anything else that you want to add before you leave? <laughs> um, I don't think so. If um, anybody is interested in following along with my homesteading journey, you can follow me at Simon Says Real Food on Instagram. I am not on Facebook anymore, so Instagram <laughs> is the place to find me. And then, um, of course, my website is simonsaysrealfood.com. Awesome. And so thank you for listening. Um, before we leave, we would love to hear from you guys. So if you want to write any comments on the podcast. Corey and I read them. They make our day. Um, They're just 
we have received some of the most amazing comments and it's really cool. Uh, and if you feel so inclined, you can leave a review. Comments and reviews are how the podcast gets seen. Um, and we thank you guys for listening. Also, before we um, log out, I don't know, before we end this, um, this is a quick reminder that if you don't have your own homestead and you're looking for real food in your area, uh, contact your local Weston A. Price chapter leader, of which all three of us are, right? Yeah. Yeah. And um, the way you can find that is to go to westonaprice.org. Christine, is that right? Yeah. Okay. Westonaprice.org. And then you find um, where it says uh, connect with your local chapter leader or something. And then you can email them and they'll be able to tell you where to find real food in your area. And I think that's it. So thanks, Sloan. Thank you, Christine. Thank you for having me. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Bye. All right. Bye. Thanks for listening to Modern Ancestral Mamas. Check out the show notes for the resources. You can find Christine on Instagram at NourishTheLittles and online at NourishTheLittles.com. You can find Corey on Instagram at ForNutrientSake and online at ForNutrientSake.com. Follow us on Instagram at Modern Ancestral Mamas. The information contained in this show is for informational purposes only. It should not be intended as medical advice and should not replace your relationship with your healthcare practitioner.